Amen. I encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's Word this morning. We are in 2 Samuel. We're going to be reading chapter 9 this morning, which is just 13 verses. Here's the Word of the Lord, 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. It is good to be together. Amen. Good to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day with the Lord's people, singing the Lord's praises, hearing the Lord's word. My name is Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here at Doxa, and it is a joy to be able to say that. Uh, to be a pastor here is one of the great delights and honors of my life, truly, and I love to be able to bring God's word to you. And so uh, we're getting going again in Second Samuel. Let me just say, wasn't it so neat to see two weeks ago, Pastor Max, and then last week, a graduated intern, Eddie, preaching last week. Can we give it up to those two guys? Ultimately, 
give it up for the Lord, his work in their lives, to call them to this endeavor, to see them be trained, and they're pursuing uh, uh, training in seminary beyond the internship they both went through here as well. And what a joy to see God raise up men who are capable and called to preach his word. So we're in 2 Samuel, we're in chapter 9. And this is going to be a fun one for me, pretty much guaranteed. I'm going to butcher this name a few times. Y'all heard me not butcher it, however, the first five times, I think. Can we all say it on three? One, two, three. Mephibosheth. Dare you to say that five times fast. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. It's not going to happen. I can't do it. I've been trying. I even practiced that. Didn't get through two, all right? So if you hear Mephibosheth, if you hear Mephibosheth, push, whatever you hear, just laugh it off. Know that I probably know that I just did that. But I'm just going to work on going, you know, plowing through Mephibosheth's name a whole bunch of times today. This is a great, great passage. I am so delighted to be able to preach this passage. So the title this morning is The King's Kindness. The King's Kindness. And I was thinking this week as I was studying and praying to to bring you this word this morning, and an analogy came to mind as it pertains to preaching uh, different passages of Scripture. And I, I thought of an analogy like a, um, this is going to be a very amateur description of what gold miners do, but just go with me that preaching can be compared to different types of mining for gold. And I'm sure there's probably more than three types, but I thought of three. Uh, uh, some, sometimes you're mining for gold and the ground is hard. But you know or you're confident there is gold under there if only you will do the hard work to extract it out. And there are, by analogy, some passages that are hard when you come to them. You're not quite sure on the face of the passage how you're going to get the meat of this, drill into it, and able to, in order to bring it to God's people in a sermon form on Sunday. There's plenty of passages like that. Other, other times you find a, a big old gold nugget. And your job is to extract that from the, from the rock wall, from the ground, wherever you find it, and just not to, not to break it apart, but to make sure you get it all out. And sometimes that's by analogy, some passages are like that. It is one giant, just gold nugget of God's truth, goodness, power, and salvation. And your job is just to don't mess it up. Like, bro, it's right there for you. Don't mess it up. That was kind of 2 Samuel 7 for me. The Davidic covenant, this massive, awesome, golden nugget of God's truth in his revelation. And I don't know, hopefully I didn't mess it up too badly at least. The nugget was there still by the time I got done, I think. Thirdly, there is a time where you, you just, you're walking around and you start tripping on gold nuggets. I mean, they are right there on the surface. I know that doesn't actually happen, all right? I'm just saying, by metaphor, you, you, you just look at the passage, okay, and you're like, it's all up in the passage. It's like staring at you, just one thing after another thing after another thing, and the ground is fertile. You go one layer deeper, and there's more gold. This is this passage this morning. There is so much gold to extract out of this. I guarantee you, I, doing the best of my ability, have not even gotten to the bottom of it. But you can. You can, as a student of God's word, continue to meditate on this passage. It is oh so rich in God's goodness. It's like you heard the phrase, an embarrassment of riches. This is an embarrassment of biblical riches for me, and I hope that you will see it clearly for you as well this morning. Okay, the big idea is this. 
the covenant kindness that David shows his enemy's descendant foreshadows the even greater kindness King Jesus shows his enemies in the gospel. Several commentators, as I was reading and studying, call, call this or refer to this as David at his best or David at his finest. This is a shining penultimate moment in David's kingship. And if you know the story, uh, the worst is coming soon. But this is David at his best here. This is perhaps even better, maybe not as popular or as well known, but even better in David's life than killing Goliath in terms of how well he portrays being God's king here. So I have been praying that God would open my eyes, illuminate my mind, and therefore also do the same to you so we can just marvel at his goodness, marvel at his kindness this morning. Are you ready? Okay, just to be clear, that was not rhetorical. If you weren't, I would walk away, but it sounds like enough of you are, so I will continue. The king's initiative. We're going to look at three uh, uh, themes in the passage, and we're going to wrap this up with a just a, a look at the gospel, as I'm going to call it, the gospel according to Mephibosheth. Number one, though, is this. We see the king's initiative in the first six verses. Chapter 9 opens up with this, and David said, and so we're, we're not sure what the time marker is on this, but there seems to be agreement that it's probably better to say this is near uh, the end of chapter 7. Chapter 8 is not necessarily chronological, but more of a summary of the expansion north, south, east, and west of David's kingdom of Israel, not so much chronological, but chapter 9, it would seem, picks up closer to the end of chapter 7, David's prayer after God establishes the covenant with David. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for the sake of Jonathan or for Jonathan's sake? Now, if you're paying attention to David's life, if you've read or listened to First Samuel, and the, the, the reality about Saul in the life of David, you, you, could, you could forgive David for, for not asking a question like this. Is there a way that I can bless someone from the house of Saul? Like David, you have just hardly had a moment of a respite of peace in your kingdom. It was Saul who chased you for years before his death on the battlefield, along with his son uh, Jonathan dying at the same time, who was one of David's best friends. It was Saul's descendants, his, his many different sons or, or other descendants who tried to usurp David and tried to have a divided kingdom. It was David who was given victory over Saul's uh, descendants and over Saul. And yet now, what are you doing, David? Is there someone that you can show kindness in, John, in, in Saul's house? So, so what is going on here? We have to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 20. And I want you to turn there so that you understand why in the world would David be committed to such a thing as showing kindness to the house of Saul, and as we see here, for Jonathan's sake. So 
1 Samuel chapter 20, we're parachuting in the middle of the story in 1 Samuel that David is fleeing from King Saul. At this point in the story, David has killed Goliath. He is now the nation's hero, really even above King Saul. And Saul knows that David has been anointed the next king and not Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan, excuse me, Jonathan and David are best friends, though they are just tied at the soul together. And David knows that Saul wants to kill him, but Jonathan, at this point in the story, is basically still saying, you know, David, I, I doubt it. I mean, I know he's not nice, but me and my daddy are close. And if he wanted to kill you, he would have told me so. And he hasn't told me anything like that, and so I don't know. And so, so David devises a plan with Jonathan, and basically he's going to be absent from the king's table because he ate at the king's table each night. He's going to be absent from the king's table, and, and eventually, after day two, maybe into day three, Saul is bound to say, where is David? And based on how Jonathan feeds a line to Saul... Based on Saul's response, they agree they're going to know whether David's wrong. It's kind of, a, kind of a, a hunch that went wrong. Or if David's right, based on Saul's response, and he actually does want to kill him. And so here is what we need to read. Starting in verse 12, Jonathan says to David, The Lord God of Israel be witness, when I have sounded out my father when he's played that part, about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then sin and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more. Also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go into safety, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul, it says. So this is the covenant in private, one-on-one, -on -one, that David and Jonathan had set up together, and it perpetuates a kindness from David to Jonathan's family line, which really is also Saul's family line. Well, David goes missing from the table. Saul asks where he is. Jonathan plays the part, tosses it out. You'll have to read it for yourself. And Saul is irate at the reason that David is gone. And Jonathan clues in, yep, daddy wants to kill David. And so they had a plan that they would, they would uh, meet out in a field and Jonathan would fire a couple of bow and arrows and he would bring a young servant boy who would go to fetch the arrows. David would be uh, hiding in a rock enclosure in that field and based on what Saul instructed the boy, if he said A instruction, David would know that he's safe. If he said B instruction to the boy, David would know that he was right and he gone. And Saul, I'm sorry, Jonathan gives instruction B to the boy. The boy is none the wiser, takes the arrows and leaves. And David knows he's got to get out of there. And then we read this in 
verse 42 of 1 Samuel 20. They come together. They embrace. They know this could be the last time they see each other. In fact, there's, this is the second to last time they would ever see each other. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So David goes in hiding. Jonathan goes back to his dad in the city. This is the covenant that David now has in mind. And now that he has peace in the kingdom, now that his kingdom is finally solidified and growing and he doesn't have uh, exterior or interior enemies, at least for a hot minute in the story, David is asking, who can I bless? Who can I show the kindness of God to for Jonathan's sake from the house of Saul? Now, notice what happens. They call in a servant named Ziba. Ziba appears to be like the, the, the um, property manager of Saul's estate and of Saul's possessions. He calls Ziba in and he says, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Now notice that David says, Is there someone of the house of Saul? He doesn't ask about the house of Jonathan, but he's going to get so much more than he bargains for in Ziba's statement. Ziba says to David, there is still a son, but in fact, it's a son of Jonathan. But he is crippled in his feet, Ziba says. This is slight conjecture, but it seems likely true that David doesn't even know Jonathan had a son. Because of the number of years that have elapsed since they had seen one another, the one other occurrence was a very brief exchange, and then they're gone, and then Jonathan dies in battle. And this is at least 15 years after the covenant was established, maybe even 20 years after the covenant was established. Plenty of time for Jonathan to have a family that David never even knew about. And David is looking, if you notice the word, he is looking, he says it twice in the first three verses, someone to show kindness to. The second time he says the kindness of God to. This is the Old Testament Hebrew, it's the language of the Old Testament, the word chesed. You got to get guttural with it if you're going to do it right. Chesed, but you got to watch out for the splash zone. So I'm not going to say it too much, okay? But chesed is the covenant-keeping Loving kindness of God. In fact, often in the English Old Testament, you'll see loving kindness as one word. That's the word hesed. It is tied into the very character and nature of God, that he is a covenant-keeping God of hesed to his people. Loving kindness. The, the Greek equivalent in the New Testament may very well be grace, basically. It's hard to bring it through in just one word, though. It's the unmerited, abundant, ongoing, loving kindness of God himself. And David wants to express this to someone of Saul's house, but now he finds out there's someone in Jonathan's house. Jonathan, being in the line of Saul, that's even better. But Ziba says, but he is crippled in his feet. And we go back to 2 Samuel 4.4. 4, when we read this verse, we've already been through it, but it was just a, a drop-in moment in 2 Samuel 4.4. 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. And then it explains how that happened. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came. That is the news about their death. 
And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So we're introduced to Mephibosheth as a five-year-old boy whose nurse somehow drops him. And we're not clear on exactly how far it was. Or did she also fall on top of him? What, what, what could have been so bad that he is now permanently disabled? But whatever it was... Though we're not told, was it his hips, was it his knee, what was it? It's, he's crippled in both of his feet. So Ziba tells David about this, and David says, where is he? Where is he? He's at Lodabar, staying at some dude's house. Now, Lodabar is a rural area. The, the meaning of the word is the place with no pasture. So it's a pretty obscure, even uh, maybe purposefully obscure place that Mephibosheth, as the grandson of Saul, the arch enemy to David, is, is residing. It was common for new dynasty families to eradicate the former dynasty's family in that day and age. So we can surmise, though we're not told in the text, that perhaps that was an intentional thing. He's in a very obscure place. He's a, he's a young adult at this point. He's crippled in his feet. But David says, call him. Get him here. So they called him and they brought Mephibosheth to David. And what's it say in verse 6? He fell on his face and paid homage. You can just use your imagination to see what I would believe to be a, a pretty awkward and pretty tense moment, especially for Mephibosheth. He falls at his feet, but he can't even walk in the first place. So it's like he gets off of whatever he's seated on, down on the ground, and then prostrate before David. And I would argue that's the right thing to do when you don't know why you just got summoned to the king's palace. When you are, again, the grandson of his arch enemy. You've very likely not been told why you're being summoned. Who knows if he knew anything. But David says, apparently enthusiastically, the, the Hebrew doesn't have an exclamation point, but you see one in the, at least in the ESV, Mephibosheth. The first time he's ever met this young man. Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth's like, ah, behold, I am your servant. Whatever this is about, I am your servant. To be clear, and again, that's the right posture to take before the king when you don't know what's coming. But in the blink of an eye, what do we see? Everything changed from Mephibosheth. This is secondly the king's blessing, starting in verse 7, the king's blessing. David says, do not fear. <laughs> Natural to fear before the king when you're the, grand, you're the grandson of of your former enemy, do not fear. For I, what does he say? Three things. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you the land of Saul, your father. Father here used loosely, grandfather, right? Descendant of. And you shall eat thirdly at my table always. In the blink of an eye, Mephibosheth's life changes entirely. He's going to be shown kindness from the king, this, this godly, loving kindness from the most powerful man anywhere around in King David. Secondly, he goes from 
podunk nowhereville place with no pasture staying at some guy's house to you have now inherited all of your grandfather's estate all of his belongings are now yours your land his land is now yours and thirdly while we're at it you will dine with me at the king's table feasting daily always Mephibosheth, not knowing what to say, is, is so stunned, pays homage again, prostrate, you can imagine, before David, and before he can look up, his fortunes have dramatically changed. This is not a death sentence from the king, this is what you might call a life sentence in the best possible way. You have been given a new lease on life. You will eat at my table, you will own your grandfather's estate, and I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And he says to David, what is your servant? Or, or who am I that you would show regard for a dead dog such as I, he says. Very self-abasing words here. Worthless, undeserving. Dogs back then were not your little cuddly creatures you pay thousands of dollars to adopt, right? That's not what you had going on here. This is not dead puppy. This is like, no, these are wild, ravenous, annoying dogs that don't belong in civilization. And I'm like a dead one. Meaning unclean. Dead animals, especially those kinds, would have been unclean, not to be touched, not to be around. I am, as it were, a dead dog in the presence of you, king. Who am I that you would show such kindness and regard to me? But the king's words triumph over Mephibosheth's self-abasing comments, and Mephibosheth's life is instantly changed. He woke up in Podunk nowhere, with, with the only name being that he was the grandson to Saul. Nothing famous or noteworthy. And he will go to bed with all of Saul's estate. And as we'll see, servants, basically a business off of the estate, and he was summoned forever to the king's table. But we need to see one more scene before we start drawing out gospel gold in this story. I hope you can see it already. Are we connecting dots? Are you seeing some of that gold on the ground there right now for you to just pick up? Thirdly, the king's provision. The king's provision. See how David carries out these blessings, verses 9 through 13. He brings Ziba back, and he gives him his marching orders. Hey, all that belongs to Saul I have now given to your master's grandson. You and your sons shall till the land, bringing in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. That's where I get, at least potentially, there's a business here from Mephibosheth to own because bread has a process to it that you have to make it, and you're going to do all that for Mephibosheth. He's got all the land. He's got all the servants. Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will be at my table, David says. Ziba had 15 sons. That's a lot. And 20 servants. And now the 35 of them plus Ziba, he's got a crew, Mephibosheth does, of 36 workers under him. It says that he had a, uh, he had a son named Micah, 
And all who lived in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth's servants, and he lived in Jerusalem, and he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is just a rundown of how, minus the very last sentence, how just unbelievable Mephibosheth, I almost said it, Mephibosheth, how unbelievable his life became. Now he's living in the capital city, Jerusalem, eating at the king's table, owning his granddaddy's property, all of these workers under him now. And it says that Mephibosheth had a son named Micah. Uh, We don't know for sure by the text if he already had that son or if he had that son later. But the point of dropping that in would be that this line, uh, this blessing perpetuated uh, beyond only Mephibosheth to Jonathan's descendant even in this young boy Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house were his servants. He ate always at the king's table. But the author wants you to understand before he moves on to the next story. The last thing, and he was lame in both his feet. The fact that it's in chapter 4, verse 4, as a lead up to this story, Ziba makes sure that David knows about this in the first thing he says about Mephibosheth, and the author wants you to remember this. This repetition matters. You see the theme here. A physically handicapped person would often be cast aside in this society. They could not produce for their family, meaning they did not have the value that was associated with being productive and being strong as a man. So you had less value, less honor, maybe no honor, maybe even just were a shameful person in society. And yet David is a good king. David ignores that fact. It does not play in. It does not create a barrier to show the loving kindness of God toward Mephibosheth. And the fact that this is shown just makes David's kindness all the more incredible. And I want to say that while this passage is not a case study, it's not written just for the purpose of being a case study as far as how we would show kindness to someone with a physical disability. There is value in meditating on that aspect of David's kindness here. God's grace shows up through David's kindness to Mephibosheth, and it can also show up to people in our lives through our kindness with people with physical limitations. They could be from birth. They could be through an accident. They could be through a disease. And if you're someone with a physical limitation, as there are a number in our church, and no doubt if we were to total those you knew, they would be probably in the hundreds, people that you know in your family, in your friend group, who you work with with physical disabilities, physical limitations. Please hear me if you are among us here. The challenges and the limitations that you may face today are not an indicator of God's judgment on your life. Read John chapter 9, if you have not read John chapter 9 sometime this week, to see the defense of that in Jesus' ministry. Rather, these challenges, these limitations can be used of God, and they are, to highlight all of our need for God's compassion, and it gives us opportunity so that we can show God's kindness to be extended through us to people in those situations. We cannot grant to someone what David granted to Mephibosheth here, but we can use it as a template for compassion and kindness, the very kindness of God flowing through us to people that are in need. 
And so the scene closes on that note. Mephibosheth lame in both his feet. And now we have the opportunity to mine some gold out of this passage. I have resisted going into it over and over. I wanted to save it all in this manner so we could see this together. I'm calling this last part the gospel according to Mephibosheth. And the summary which is on the screen here is that we are all in a similar yet worse condition than Mephibosheth. And Jesus is a similar yet greater king than David. And this is where I have been praying. Oh God, would you please open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. Help us to see, give sight to the blind, and those with sight give greater visibility to see the glories of the gospel here. It does not require a great deal of imagination to come to see our spiritual condition before God analogously to the life of Mephibosheth before David. There is an analogy, and yet I want you to understand that we are spiritually in a worse condition than Mephibosheth. So consider the following. Mephibosheth was lame and crippled. He was bound up in weakness. He was unable to help himself. But while his infirmity was physical, ours is spiritual. We are spiritually lame. We are those unable spiritually to bring ourselves before the king with anything to offer. We are weak. We are lame. We have nothing to offer the king of kings that we would deserve his kindness. Secondly, consider Mephibosheth's heritage coming from King Saul. Not a family line that you would be proud of by the time David's in power. He was born an enemy of the king. And we likewise have a heritage of sinful nature from our first father, Adam. We have inherited a sin nature, and we have actually perpetuated that all the more with our own rebellion against the king of kings. So we are born, we are born in sin. And we perpetuate that sin in our own lives. Thirdly, consider this. Mephibosheth's name means a shameful one. Man, that was not a good given name. His name meant a shameful one. And in our own souls, we carry shame with us. I've heard shame described as an uneasiness in our soul. We know inherently something is off. Things are not right. I am not right. There has been a shame heaped upon me, perhaps by the sin of others against me. There, have, there has been shameful acts that I have contributed to, hurting others, but also simply against God, for which I carry shame in my life. And shame is evidence of the fall uh, evidence, evidence of our depravity. And by that I mean that sin stains and sin poisons and sin corrupts every aspect of our being. Even the best qualities 
sin has a corrupting influence upon. And then consider Mephibosheth calls himself a dead dog, the height of uncleanness. Man, you add up his name and you add up what he says about himself. And today we would say, that bro's got a low self-esteem problem. If he sought popular psychology and counseling today for that low self-esteem problem, he'd probably be diagnosed with something in the DSM-5 or something. He'd probably also, because this is how oftentimes the world counsels now, be tried to conv- try to convince him that shame, you just need to let it go, bro. You, you, you just believe it's there. Shame's not there because God's a figment of your imagination, and religion's probably the real reason you feel that shame. It's religion that keeps that upon you. It's not real. You just need to let it go, move on from it. And after two generations of this type of counseling being pervasive in our world, we have exactly the condition we find our culture in today. People now so thoroughly convinced that they just need to shed that shame and let it go, they're not being told about the one they take it to. They're not being told that it's real, that guilt is before a holy God. That shame is actually meant to lead you to search out the grace and kindness of God in Jesus Christ. There is someone you take that shame to. That shame can be removed. It is not illusory. It is not just your imagination, but spiritually it is real. And God awaits you in Jesus Christ to give you freedom from that shame. We may not call ourselves a dead dog. I get it. But it would be an appropriate description of our soul's condition before God apart from Jesus Christ. But praise be to God. The gospel of Mephibosheth. While it starts with these realities, it does not end here. We need to understand the condition that we are in in order for the light of the gospel to pierce this dark situation all the more, all the more gloriously, all the more powerfully. And so now we can turn to consider how Jesus can be analogous to David, but is oh so much greater. If our condition is worse than Mephibosheth's, Jesus And his gospel and his reign is so much superior even to David. So consider a few things with me. Consider the kindness of David. David initiated everything in the story toward Mephibosheth. David decided he would show loving kindness to someone. David summoned Mephibosheth. David announced his kindness and his intentions to Mephibosheth. David had the power to get that done. All Mephibosheth could do was receive this kindness. And so we see this in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but, because, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Love that. Come on. 
so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's go. The kindness of God seen in Jesus Christ. You don't have to stop just because I keep talking. It's all good. You can, if you're going to do it, you do it. It's great. Jesus initiates with helpless people, for that is the only people that he saves. Do you understand your helpless condition before the holy God of the universe that your one and only means of salvation is through Jesus Christ and the mercy and loving kindness that God gives to you through Jesus Christ? His loving kindness is great in him. Consider secondly how David treats Mephibosheth like one of the king's sons. He ate at the table like one of the king's sons. But in Christ, you are not like a son of the king. You become a son of God. Romans chapter 8, 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In Christ, you were not treated like one who is a son of God, a child of God. You become a very child of God through faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. You are not just welcomed to a table as a friend, but now as a child of God. In every true spiritual sense, and eternally an heir, H-E-I-R, an heir through Jesus Christ. What is God's is yours. And what is God's? All things. All things. Have you guys seen that new telescope? That, that no, James Webb, I think it's called, that telescope that shows you the farthest pictures of the galaxies we've ever seen? All of that belongs to your creator God, to your heavenly Father, and it is ours eternally because of Jesus Christ. If you are in him, you are now a child of God. Thirdly, consider how David makes his enemy descendant a recipient of mercy and grace. And yet Jesus does this all the more. Romans 5, verses 4. 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For while one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die, God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. We were weak. We were sinners. We were enemies. And that is the condition in which Jesus died for you. He did not wait for you to clean yourself up. He did not wait for you to have a nice track record of 31 good days. He came for you when you were weak, 
when you were sinner, when you were his enemy, and reconciled you to himself by his initiating, electing, loving kindness. That he set his affection on you. By this, God shows his love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's a picture of Mephibosheth in Romans 5. Weak, unable, an enemy to David. How much more magnificent Jesus' love for us in dying for our sins. Finally this. David was faithful to his covenant with one man, Jonathan, by showing his kindness in this moment to one man, Mephibosheth, welcoming him to his table. But Jesus is faithful to his covenant, what he calls the new covenant with his people. And he welcomes all who come to him on the basis of faith, as I've heard it put, with nothing but the empty hands of faith, ready to receive just as Mephibosheth did. Mephibosheth said, yup, sounds great. I'll come live in Jerusalem. I'll eat at the king's table. I will take your kindness, David. And hands, empty hands of faith come to God and say, I will receive all that you have. If you will grant that to me by your mercy, O God, through Jesus Christ. And consider this, David was faithful to his covenant out of his abundance. It really did not cost David much of anything to be this kind to this man Mephibosheth. Contrast that with Jesus and what it did cost him to initiate his new covenant by his very blood. He gave his life in your place so that you could have eternal life in his name. He died a sinner's death in the place of sinners. He died a shameful death, bearing our shame in order to remove it. He paid the debt of sin that has come against us with his legal demands. He removed that so we could be forgiven and welcomed into eternal life in his name. How much more glorious the loving kindness of Jesus and the covenant that he establishes and that he, as the king of kings, welcomes us still to his table. It is at the table of communion that we remember and celebrate His work on our behalf. We read this in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 22. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, He broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Even before his death, Jesus being God the Son, knew that what would come on the third day would be his resurrection. Forty days after that would be his ascension, returning to glory from which he had come to take his seat, his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father, where he now reigns and awaits a day when he will return. And when he returns to consummate the kingdom that has already broken in and continues to break in everywhere that he reigns and that his name is honored, we see the kingdom of God spreading. But it will be consummated one day upon his return 
after final judgment, and he awaits that day when he will drink it new with his people, that you will dine at the table of the king forever. This tiny meal, just a little grape juice and a tiny bread cracker, is but a remembrance of the reality that what Jesus has done on the cross was for you. That you had to have that happen. He had to go through that in order for you to be forgiven, reconciled to God, given eternal life, filled with the Holy Spirit, and that you will be able to dine with Him, rejoicing in His presence, glorifying Him, and enjoying Him forever. And so this table is for all who profess Jesus as Lord, who have recognized their helplessness, their hopelessness apart from Him, their spiritual infirmity, their lack, their shame, but they know where to bring it. They bring it to Jesus and He removes it. He reconciles you to Himself. So this is for all of you who would come in the name of Jesus, trusting in His grace to save you. If that is not you today, this is not a meal for you. You are oh so welcome here and oh so welcome among us. But do not take this for it would be like drinking judgment upon yourself to just go through the motions. Rather, we would implore you to turn. Turn to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Cry out for his mercy in the name of Jesus. And then come. But if that is not you, you wait Let us come, let us rejoice.